This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 29th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast. A big thank you to all our listeners for all the positive feedback on the PDCA model from countries around the world, including Brazil, Germany, Great Britain, Canada, North America, Australia, and my favourite hometown, New Zealand. On today's podcast, myself, Glynis McCarthy, and Brent Robinson continue exploring the PDCA model for learning teams facilitators with the doing part of the PDCA cycle. On today's episode, we will explore the context of communicating your plan to participants, conducting the first session in learning mode, providing soap time to give people time to think and reflect, conducting the second session for problem solving and clarification mode, then moving into problem analysis, problem solving, and solution mode. In the next episode 30, we'll explore the check, study, and act part of the framework. Concluding with episode 31, when we will reflect on the series and feedback from our listeners. The show notes will have a link for you to register and download a PDF version of the PDCA framework. We're granting access to this document to the Learning Teams community under Creative Commons copyright, which means that you are free to copy, communicate, and adapt the work for non-commercial purposes as long as you attribute the work to Learning Teams Inc. and abide by the copyright and intellectual property terms. We hope that you enjoy the series and we continue our journey of learning and improving with Learning Teams. Let's now move into the uh, doing part of a learning team. And that doing part is basically uh, broken into uh, you know, three main areas. And that's about being able to uh, communicate and empower, about conduct and learn. And then it's around uh, clarify, challenge and solve. So let's start the conversation around the whole communicate and empower. Look, I think that this is a, a really important part. Um, this is a bit that I think that we miss out on time and time again. Um, for me, it is it's about empowering people. It's about giving people a tangible skill set. Um, again, you know, the, my background in adult literacy, what I found that I spent a lot of my time doing when I worked with people one-on-one that had language or literacy barriers was really around how do you build those critical thinking skills. Um, so many of our workforce uh, are told to do something. They're really rule-bound in the work that they do. They are not asked to challenge. They are not asked to, to critically reflect. They, in fact, if, if you are absent of doing such things long enough, I think that that skill really starts to dissipate. And so what are we trying to do in this? We're trying to make sure that people are aware of what are we trying to achieve? So what is the learning team? What's the purpose of it? What's the scope of it? Um, How do we create psychological safety, both for them as individuals, but for the wider group? And and how do we, what is the ground rules that we're going to to follow as we move forward? And and what are the phases? Because again, 
for people who haven't participated in learning teams, it's the great unknown. But that, what that does is it creates uncertainty. And with that uncertainty then, we're less likely to put our thoughts forward because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know how this information is going to be used. We don't know if later that all of this information was somehow secretly recorded and is going to be played back and that there's going to be a negative outcome for the, for the contributor that gave that information. Um, so for me, that kind of empowerment is giving people a skill set and really developing that skill set over time as people participate in more and more learning teams. I think that empowerment is the key word here, isn't it? I mean, so often, and I think a lot of people have experienced this, that we've put in, we've started something and it could be a learning team. And if people don't believe that there's going to be a benefit or an outcome at the end of it and something's going to change, they're less likely to uh, feed into it with their knowledge and their wisdom of the particular issue or problem that you're facing. And you see it time and time again. Um, and I think that's why once you start them, you've got to be very, very cognizant of the fact that something needs to come out of it at the end of it, that there will be a change or there will, we, will, we will endeavor to improve the situation that we've come, we've met about. So, so I think part of that empowerment process in this phase is to really establish the, the context that they can be empowered because what we're doing here is we're, we're actually communicating our plan. So the first part of doing that is communicate the plan that we did that. It's about informing them. And one of the things that I see quite often is that um, we, don't, we don't share with people just about bringing yourself to share your stories and, and to listen to others. When we're running learning teams, a lot of people say to us, what do we need to bring? And I think that's a really great phase for us to sort of reiterate to people that part of that initial thing around empowerment, say, you bring yourself, bring your stories, bring those things that, that you are the expert in. That sets them up. That sets them up for that, that really great first phase. And, and I think another thing, and we, and we saw it just recently, about soap time. Pe people need to know that we want to have time to reflect. Because sometimes people feel they're simply part of a process and that there's a start point and an end point. And we're really saying, no, we, we want to have that reflection, that soak time in between. Because we want to revisit, we want to get that clarification. And I think that's part of that empowerment process. So, so I think they get to feel that they're already forming part of it rather than being the output of it. I agree. I, I think the... For me, the soak time or the reflection has been very important, whether I've been running a learning team or I've been involved in a learning team. Because quite often, you know, and you're trying to, you know, you talked about before that people have said to us, like, you know, some of them taking two or three hours or four days or, you know, what some crazy number that we all find really it's taking that long. But when you're trying to keep them succinct and pacing them so they're effective, quite often, I, you know, I know I have is, I've come back and that, when I've had time to think about it, say, oh, I had some, I had another thought about it. And so that can still be incorporated in it. And I, I really like that part of the process. It makes sense. And I just sort of, one last thing I could have wanted to add on that was that I think if we don't scope it well to the participants, what we then do is we allow people with agendas to come to the fore. Um, so we really need to be quite clear about what it is, why are we meeting? 
why are we discussing this particular point? What's going to happen to the information? Because what I hear from a lot of practitioners is that they find that people will not let go of that agenda and it can be really hard to sort of rein them in. But actually, if people are just going to, if people are just coming to have a bit of a chat, then they can come and have a bit of a whinge. And if you're not really clear and strong around your facilitation skills, it can be really difficult to actually to get them to participate or to move beyond that agenda that they might want to push. You know, that ultimately we are there to dig much deeper into that problem identification of whatever it might be. And so we need to set the ground rules quite clearly around that. Um, again, that kind of, that sort of addresses the, it goes over time. We can't get people to all agree. We can't get people to sort of focus on one point, you know, that um, it becomes really divergent in the things that we're discussing. I think if we do really good preparation and we're very clear about that empowerment piece, um, then actually we can set people up to, to trust that they are then going to fulfill the brief that they're given. Um, and if they're not able to, then we start to move into that kind of the challenge or the accountability piece. I think you've got to identify hotspots quite quickly, those people that are going to bring those hotspots and then work out what you're going to do with them. Yeah, are you going to delve into them or are you going to set them aside and sit with them? And, and it might be another learning team. You know, I think, you know, there's got to be an outcome for them. You can't just brush them off. They've got to be dealt with, but they've got to be dealt with quite succinctly. So those, those, those last two parts of the communicate and empower is then really about informing the group of other stakeholders of presence and what their roles are. So if you can have a second facilitator present, then it's, it's useful to say, why would a second facilitator? And it might be that they're taking notes or that you know, they're going to be uh, writing on sticky notes for people to, to look at. So whatever they do, it's important that everyone understands that they're, that they're there for a purpose. They're not there to make up numbers. Because sometimes that's what people think. You know, it's just an, another merry-go-round, giving it a different name, a fancy name. And then to wrap that up, what's really important is that we need to inform that group how the information given and learnings will be used. How it will be used, how will it be shared? Because if we don't create those expectations early, then it's going to come back to why would I bother? I think that's a really important part around that doing bit is that whole sort of you know, communicate and empower, which is about how to communicate your plan to the participants. And then we move into the next part of the doing bit, which is about conducting and learning through the learning team itself. And that's really broken into three stages, which is you know doing that first session around problem identification, where we go into learning mode. Then there's about providing that soak time, that space for people to think and reflect. And at the same point, that's also a good time for the facilitator to think and reflect as well. And once again, you know, what I'm seeing where these learning teams are dragging on, that's when they've, that's when they've lost that time. Because that's when, they, that's when they have the opportunity to bring it back on stream when they get together in that way. So let's talk about the whole sort of conducting that first session around the problem ID and the learning mode. Because this, I get asked this a lot. And, and you know, that's the fundamental thing. People say to us, how do I start the conversation? So the facilitator, people think that they need to lead the conversation. So what are your thoughts around that? I think, oh, go. 
Um, I was just going to say, I think that this is where the facilitator needs uh, a repertoire of really different types of questioning techniques. I think that if you ask a series of closed questions, you're not going to get much dialogue happening. If you ask a series of very open-ended questions, again, I think that you can lose track of what's going on. I think you need to have a repertoire. You need to be able to ask questions that are, are, are reflective, are challenging at times, that are clarifying, that are probing, that show some empathy if, if emotion is being expressed. Actually, I think we need a range of things and we need to get people to start with what they know. So what are they familiar with? So, you know, what does your routine work look like? Yeah, what does a good day look like? And once you've explored what does a good day look like, then start them to move on to where there's anomalies and, and where there are deviations from those good days um, and get people to start to talk about the less familiar. I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to get into the learning too quickly. And again, we don't scaffold it enough for people to kind of catch up and to, to get to that same place. If we rush the stuff too quickly, actually you just get a rushed outcome. Um, this doesn't mean that this takes hours and hours, but we do need to have a kind of, a, a, I suppose, a repertoire of, of how we might lead people into that. And it's taking them from the known to the unknown or the familiar to the unfamiliar. So is that when we're making them uh, consciously competent? Well, one would hope that they are already consciously competent. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get them to see when they might move through those phases of competency. Um, but, but, you know, we're asking, that's a fairly high level critical thinking skill that we're asking people to do. I think kind of asking them about the tangible stuff, you know, tell me what a good day looks like. That's a really nice starting point that is generally not particularly inflammatory. You know, and you can start to explore it. And if you have a repertoire of different sort of questioning techniques, actually you're able to move in and out of just our classic ones, which is our open and closed techniques. We need to have questions that evoke probing. We need to have questions that can challenge. We need questions that can um, seek clarification. We need questions that can um, demonstrate empathy. You know, we need to be able to have a range of different ways of communicating and getting people to, to first tell the story in a way that we can actually take hold of and make sense of. And then we need to move them into a phase as we move forward through this and a way to get them to, to reflect on that story. I think asking them what a good day looks like is so much more powerful than what's going wrong because that just opens up the floor to, or can to a rush of stuff. And, you know, that way it's starting off on a more positive note and you're, you're building it up um, and providing some depth for it. And I, you know, I, I've, experienced it when we've gone the other way and looked towards the negative and uh that can take you down a rabbit hole that you don't might not be able to back out of very quickly oh look i, I just heard one recently where that they, they got together the, the group of people because there was an event and the opening question was what went wrong on the day okay um that just really obvious well you know well yeah we, we went back to and said look you know think of it in the, in the triangle you know we want we want we already know what the organization thought that, that's all your system that's what exists now but start off by saying what did normal work look like what does routine work look like don't don't go straight into it um because as soon as we went straight into it everyone started to shut down yeah because all that emotion kicked in 
So we really want to go back up and, and, and you know, focus questions that are there to look at understanding and learning rather than trying to shift the position to a person or, or, or to the event or something at that time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's relative. It takes some experience and some practice to do that, though, doesn't it? Because it's easy, and especially for leaders, it's easy to go, well, what went wrong? You know, that's the first question. Yeah. I think it goes back to the way that you ask about the guarding missing on a machine, Brent. You know, you use that example. Depending on how you frame that question, will either lead you to something you're going to learn more about, or you'll just you'll go down the excuse route, and you don't want to go down that way. You want to go to that point that takes you to learn more about what they have to do to adapt. And it, so it's much better about you know it's the point about a positive question really makes a difference. And if you think about it, what the facilitator is trying to do is they're trying to triangulate. So they already know typically why it is that we're, we've called a learning team. So you already kind of have some idea of the scope. So if, if that's about management of change, we know that we know the kind of the outcome, particularly if it's an event, we know the outcome. What we're really wanting to know is what was our, is our current state of knowledge, our current practice, and what were the things that happened in the middle? So why did we go from our current state of practice, our current knowledge, to something out that's different to that? We want to know what that gap is, and we want to explore that gap. Um, my favorite question to ask people, once I've asked them, tell me about a normal day, is tell me about the rubs. You know, what are the things that cause you to pause? What are the things that frustrate you? What are the things that changed at this particular time? Where were the rubs? Um, Again, I'm not keen on getting a whole group of people getting all gnarly and cranky with me and having this huge emotional outpour. Actually, I want something that we can co-construct. So I want something that I can take and help people to develop and to really explore it. But if you dump a lot of emotion onto that, actually, it's really difficult to do that because then as a facilitator, what you're really trying to do is alleviate that emotion. And you're trying to bring people back to a point where they can start to, ex to explore something. Um, and so... I'm not keen on that. I don't want to start with well, what went wrong because of just of that thing that you've just talked about, Brent, is that that opens up a big can of worms. I want to start on the side where we, I can maintain psychological safety so I can get people to critically appraise something. Once you've opened up that can of worms, there is very little clinic, clinical appraising. You just think about the arguments that you have with your partner. When Before you start that argument with your partner, you can be very calm and very logical the moment you enter into that discussion and it starts to go down, well, you never put the bloody rubbish out, you know, and they push all of those emotional triggers. Actually, your ability to critically reflect goes out the window. So even though it was actual factual, because he doesn't. Well, you know, and so he's got a whole lot of guilt that sits around it. No Absol wonder he can't critically appraise. No or maybe he doesn't. Who knows? <laughs> um, I think... The trigger point. I think I, I lost my train of thought then. But oh, for all those husbands out there, don't put the rubbish out. We'll put an email address that you can send through. To <laughs> we can run a learning team on it. Um, I, the other thing that I, I've been thinking about is, and with my experience, is that sometimes it's really important about who's in that learning team. If you've got a lot of people that are trying to score points against each other, you know, middle managers, in my experience, typically, it gets really hard to control because you've got a lot of, you know, rubs in there and you've got a lot of opinion and you're trying to separate 
opinion from fact and that's that can be for the facilitator that can be quite hard when you're trying to do it on the fly and um i'd be really interested to hear your experiences around trying to cope with that because they are the harder the harder ones to control Um, I, I was just looking at Brent to see if he was going to say something then. Um, look, I, what I think it comes down to, again, is that scoping and being very clear about what are we looking at. Um, I think if you narrow down the focus of a learning team, you are less likely to get some of those personal agendas really running away from you. Um, and I think, again, if we start with a conversation about, well, what does good work look like? You know, when we're successful, what does that look like? Again, you don't kind of get some of that, um, the personality rubs or the role rubs that you can get, you know, in terms of patch protection and uh, I don't want anyone to be looking badly at my team or it's somebody else's fault. Um, I think if you start on, on that side and really explore current state of knowledge and then start to expand it out. And again, you expand it out in increments. And as you kind of come to a point where people are getting really heated, actually you take it back a step and then you go another step. So I think for me, it's about metering it. And again, when I, when I think about this, for me, it's about a triangle. I kind of want to know what happened in terms of the, the, what led to the point of deviation or the thing that we're trying to explore. What, what's happened there? What is the gap? You know, what's our current state of knowledge and where do I need to get to? Um, once I can figure that out in my mind, actually, I find it much easier then to lead a team. Um, if I'm really struggling on that, that's where I think you start to lose um, kind of you, you lose your traction with people and you can let people go off on a bit of a tangent. Particularly if people start to try to move from learning mode to solving mode. Yeah, and that happens. That's human nature. Yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the other things that I've had to do recently is we had a team and they were making, you know, they were, it was good, but it was, they were making some, bringing up some numbers about how many times something happened a day. And I think sometimes you've got to go away and give them a simple tool to go actually and collect some data. So when you're, after you've finished that first one, come back with some data and then we can, after the soak time, and then when we have a look at it, we go, well, the numbers we talked about were this, what did the data show? And the one we did recently, the data, still a problem, just wasn't to the extent that they thought it was because their bias was that it happens all the time. I'm sick of this, it's driving me nuts, it's killing me, I, you know, I'm stressed out about it. It was still a, an issue, but the data gave them a much better view on what was really going on. And it was happening, but their, the heuristic that they were dealing with was that they were all seeing it often, and that was the way they viewed it. And I found it really, really powerful to go and say, here's a really simple tool, go collect the data, and you know, on Thursday, we'll have a look into it. And it helped everybody. It, you know, it created we created some learning from that and say, okay, we can go deal with that. So in that final part of the conduct and learning bit, I think this is where capturing information becomes important. And we need to capture it in a way that the load sits with the facilitator or with the co-facilitator. The load shouldn't be actually with the, with the workers or the participants because their job is to contribute in that way. And once again, you know, we, we talked about this in the past and we talked about it in the book, but all of us have our own way and means of doing something. And, and sticky notes as an example may, may well be good for some situations, it may not be good for others. And yesterday when we were with a group of people, we sort of reminded them to just think, think about the, uh, the literacy 
issues with some of your workers. And if you hand them that pad and that pen and say, we want you to be scribe, then are we going to lose them? Are we, are we disempowering them? Are we making them feel awkward as a result? Oh, definitely. It's, and it doesn't have anything, it can sometimes have nothing to do with um, language and literacy. We did some, some training yesterday. Um, and again, we handed out some pens and papers for groups. Um, and the people in this particular group didn't have language and literacy issues. But it was fascinating to see those people that need a pen and paper to kind of make sense of the, the stream of thought that comes from their brain um, to their mouth so that they can write it down and kind of see what it looks like. And for those people where it actually gets in the way. So I, I think we have to always be mindful of what load are we putting on to people when we're asking them to participate and what are we actually wanting from them? Are we wanting it, particularly in that, pri that problem identification, are we wanting that stories, the richness, the nuance, or are we wanting some kind of a collection of things from them. So I think that's a really good thing that we think about before we start to, to put additional demands onto people into the in those learning teams, particularly when they're new to them. Oh, absolutely. So then we need to set people up for the next phase. And the next phase is that soak time. And really that soak time, it's about providing that time and space for people to, um, to think and reflect. And I think we've tried to um, use some of your good words here, Glynis. There you go. About, about it gives that participants the time to reflect and assimilate that new information and that new knowledge um, as learning. Because that doesn't happen straight away. No, look, you know, us adults, we have an idea of how the world works for the most part, and particularly when we have experiential knowledge. So workers, they know how work works. They've been doing it for a long while. So they have an existing schema, a way of viewing the world um, with regards to a task or activity. And we're, we're asking them to, to problem identify, to really think about something in a deeper way, to explore something in a deeper way. So there will be new learnings that will come from that. Those, those workers will need to assimilate or to synthesize that new information into their existing schema. Now, if that new information completely clashes with their existing schema, the way that they view the world, actually, there's going to be a big rub for them. And for a lot of people, they will drop that new knowledge. For others, they'll have to really go away and think about it. And it will have to kind of become absorbed. So that soak time is really important. Every time that we learn something new, we, we need the ability to learn, do, and reflect. This is really kind of an extension of that. You know, we're asking people in learning teams to, to, to talk about things, to reflect on things, to, to really to critically appraise them. Actually, soak time is really important for that process to take place. Otherwise, people simply get stuck. And also, you get people get stuck in terms of they don't move on from that existing schema. So, and you know, I think that the other part of it is that soak time supports that person's ability to think critically about the new information as well. Um, because we want them to move into that critical sort of reflective mode when we move into that whole sort of clarify, challenge and solve component of it. But that last part, and this is where we're asking that soak time is about the people that are participating. But then that soak time is actually all about the facilitate also needing to learn and reflect from that phase themselves. And, you know, understanding about the team dynamics and how that, um, that record taking or whatever means they've used, how will that flow into the next part? 
Yeah, have they done? Have you done enough uh, problem identification? Have you skimmed over elements? Yeah. Have you done it too deeply? And actually, now you've done the equivalent of navel gazing. You know, you're actually so deep into it, you can't quite see the way up again. Um, I think that that it's is is as important for participant participants as it is for the facilitator. We've all had experiences where we thought, "Yay, we've nailed that. That went really well." I think we kind of did that. It was logical. It made sense. It was succinct. People seem to be on board with it. And then there are other times you've done learning teams where you think, I really am not suited to this. Um, this is something that I am absolutely horrific at. Um, and so you need to be thinking about, well, those times, why was I successful? And those times when you weren't as successful, what was going on? Or what part did you have to play in it? What could you do differently? How could you maybe manage that situation a different way next time? Again, if we don't learn, do, and reflect, actually, we don't learn. So the same goes for what we're asking of learners goes to facilitators. And we're asking facilitators that if they can to maintain a journal. Yeah, look, um, uh, writing a journal is one of the, the very best ways of taking unconscious thought and turning it into a conscious stream. You know, when you take something that's floating around in your brain and forcing you to put hand to motion, um, so I'm old fashioned, I would write it, or whether you type it, actually, we get a visual representation of what's in our head. That's a really powerful tool then to reflect upon. That sounds well, I like to take an image of the um, capture the notes we took or, and then use that as my point of reflection. Because it always, you know, visually, it reminds me of how it went, what I thought during the time, and it gives me that that cue that you know that sort of visual cue that lets me go back and go oh yeah I could have done that better or I really need to dig down into that particular question a little bit more I think we could have done some more work around that so you know for me I like I like that visual aspect of it and, and it's interesting because that that's some of the things we keep being asked all the time is what how would you do it and we're saying well no it's not about how we would do it it's about how you would do it and that just shows that people really want to frame. Yeah. You know, they, that's what they're really lacking. And I think that, again, my only concern around learning teams is that when people are trying to do it in a very prescriptive way, I think that what you do by trying to put too much prescription over it um, is that actually you quell all of the things that you're trying to achieve from a learning team, which is the ability for people to share. Um, and so I think that this PDCA model, what that does is it provides a frame, it provides a scaffold around which in which we're going to do this task, um, but it doesn't give you a prescription about what you should do in what order. Yes, so once again, yesterday, um, we had feedback from people, you know, about their, um, you know, a bad learning team and a good learning team. And, you know, I kept reminding them that, that there's no such thing. Uh, a learning team, it's about the learnings we get. So did you get some learnings from running that learning team? And I think that that was some of the things that people were saying is that they couldn't quite identify the learnings. They could hear a lot of talking, but actually they couldn't take a lot of learning from that talking. Right. So that goes back to our recent podcast with Dr. Todd Conklin about talking must give context to doing. Which really comes back to the skill of the facilitator, facilitator. Yep. being able to craft that and to be able to put some framing around it. So now let's move into um, the last part of the do section which is around the whole clarify challenge and solve and that's when we move into where we conduct our second session now at this point this is where we may actually get some new people joining the learning team 
this is where management now want to actually come in and to be a participant in. So if that happens, what becomes essential is that is that the the learning team group, not the facilitator, helps to walk the new people through the information gathered and for the facilitator to outline the process. So if the facilitator knows that that leadership's going to come into the second part of the learning team, then I think that sets up early on about how they're going to capture narrative. And that it may be, for instance, um, Brent Robinson, it may be that the facilitator, after the first session is finished, that they put some things on post-it notes. And they yeah, put, I, Make sense? Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry, what was that? that becomes the storyboard yeah it does you know you can do an affinity sort or uh, anything that makes it yeah flow but we want the learning team group to lead that and for the facilitator to actually you know talk about outline the process that's going to happen because what's it going to show as a leadership Look, I, I think this is a really important part of a learning team. I think that management do have a, a part to play in, in learning teams, and this is the part that they have to play. I think that, again, if we're going to move to a point where you get collaboration, if you get trust, if you get um, a feeling that uh, workers are part of the solution and not part of the problem, then actually management need to be privy to, to how this unfolds and that there is a partnership between the input that workers can give but also the input that management can give. Um, I agree with you. If you can get the, the, the participants of the learning team to unfold that story or that narrative to management, it puts them in a place of empowerment. Um, I think that that's a good place for the, for the, for the participants to be. And then it, it, you know, management also have a sense of buy-in, that they are there to contribute to identifying how is this problem ultimately going to be solved, now that they have a much deeper understanding of what is the problem. And it might be that this is where they start to think about some of that problem analysis mode. And that, that's where they want to start thinking about, um, you know, do they want to do a quick sort of a problem? And in the PDCA model, we talk about, do they want to group them as such things as simple, complicated, or complex? Do they want to use some uh, wall charts or some mind maps or some fishbone diagrams or just some problem categories? And, and, and yesterday we had a group and they were wedded to a particular um, form of root cause analysis. And we said, well, why don't you use some of those categories of root cause as those things? And, you know, in the, uh, our PDCA model, we talk about, you know, machines, materials, method, place, and resource, people. All those things are, are, are classic uh, root cause categories that we can sort um, information into. And I've, I've done a couple where we've actually used an eight step um, problem solving process out of the lean program and we've plugged the learning team data and information into that and it's worked beautifully you know it's fulfilled the need of the organization because they like that a three eight step as a way to communicate and they felt comfortable with it and the learning team gave them a much deeper context so yeah i think you can go into anything you know brent and i you we've used um a mind map, you know, taking 10, 12 pages of notes, converted into a mind map and giving it back to people. Absolutely. And this is really important because, because we want now people to move from discovery. We now want them to move into problem solving. 
but problem solve within a brainstorm environment. So being able to provide that information in a way that they can take it on board, but remembering the, the more complex something is, what Todd talks about, it's about creating transparency. You can't simplify complexity. So by, by you know, having those things in those groups that helps to create that transparency, then we can move into that sort of uh, the brainstorming component. And at this point, that's where the facilitator needs to be there to support all the ideas without judgment. It doesn't matter what people come up with because that, that will get resolved through the, through the learning team elements itself. So it's about capturing those things. Um, and it's really about trying to get that group to sort of move through that process. And this is where the organizational learning happens. Because up till now, there's been lots of worker learning. Now we're moving to that organizational learning. And it, and it takes the workers learning and it turns them into actions and actions that support safer outcomes for people. And sometimes that's where we need to use some questions to try and stimulate that brainstorming as well. And that's, that's where the facilitator model comes in quite well. And, and in the PDCA model, we give those people some of those questions to stimulate it. You know, what's been working well? What needs to be done to improve the job? What, what would you do differently? And what would you do to make it better and safer? So a whole raft of things where we can stimulate those conversations. What are your thoughts, Gwyneth? Um, again, I think uh, with adult workers who have been in a very rules-based environment uh, where they're very much told what to do, actually, I think you're probably going to have to, again, develop the skill set. So, you know, uh, teach people some good problem-solving methodologies. They don't need to be complicated or... Um, you know, particularly fancy, but getting people to how do you assess and prioritize and group and evaluate? Um, how do you do that? Uh, that is um, based on evidence that's based with a good rationale that sits behind it, as opposed to something that says emotive. Um, and so I think that this is something that as a facilitator, you need to lead this, um, particularly early on when maybe workers haven't got this as a refined skill. Um, so again, I think this has to be very much facility driven. And this is where we have that opportunity, Brent Robinson, to bring back in workers imagined. So this is when we move that final part of the problem solution mode, is to really understand how effective or ineffective those current um, uh, defenses, mitigations, or controls are. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting to compare the two. Some of that alignment and some of that efficacy. Yeah, components. definitely. You get to see what's waste as well. You get yeah. to see a whole lot of things at play here. And then that last part is then understanding what new defenses and mitigations or controls are seen by the learning team is having the ability to improve those things at the same time. So that so they become quite powerful because, because now, now we have the ability to bring in workers imagined. We don't want to leave with workers imagined. We want to pull it back in in that final phase to really do that. I was going to share with you a, a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago where we'd run a learning team during the, you know, the learning stage. And I had somebody come up to me, it was a supervisor and said, I could have done that with five whys. And I said, I don't think you could have. I don't think you would have got all the context that you were looking for, all the context that we got there with five whys. You would have driven the team down a particular path to come up with an answer 
within five questions. And I said, that's the fundamental difference. He goes, well, where do we use the five whys? I said, well, in the problem solving stage, you can use them there sometimes. It's not a bad place to use them, but when you're trying to learn something, the five whys doesn't necessarily help you learn. And you know what I'm like with the five whys, I get all heated and uh, hot under the collar. And you know, it was a good conversation because he actually saw it differently. Well, I think he saw it differently. That was the nuance I got from when he was leaving. Uh, but it was really interesting, you know, because people have been, it's a nice, fast, quick tool that people use, but it's not about learning in my mind. And, and once again, um, five whys is great for simple issues. Mm. It was never designed to deal with complex issues. And sadly, because it's a simple tool, we have weaponized it and try to use it for complex situations. I always like when you see a five Y, but they never got to five, they only got to three. I think five Y to me is a validation tool. It's not an exploration tool. Yes, that's a really good point. It is a, it is a validation tool. Certainly not an exploration tool. That's a, actually a very good way of saying it. I think I'm going to use that later in the week. Right, I'll charge you. Okay, send me the bill. So for our listeners, Brent Robinson obtained a learning today. <laughs> there you go. Learn, as oh, Dr. Todd would say, learn something new every day. Just yeah, to... What about putting the rubbish bins out? Well, quite possibly. Or yes. for our American colleagues, the trash. I think it's maybe about how he needs to pull back his emotion when he wants to have a fruitful <laughs> conversation with his wife. Um, and he's also learned about five wise. What an amazing piece of learning he's had today. Why he should put the rubbish bins out. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.